Turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. On Sunday morning, we're enjoying a series, uh, a summer series entitled Encouragements uh, from the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, while we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we do go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying the book of Hosea this evening. Lord's Supper will be a part of that service. If you're a Christian and it's been a long time since you've uh, partaken of the Lord's Supper, it's super important for you to do that, and tonight will be an opportunity uh, to do that as a part of our evening service. We'll be looking specifically at three verses, 16, 17, and 18, but to pick up a little context, let's begin our reading in verse 8. Paul writes and says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Now we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. The grace, having spread through the many, uh, 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 that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the lo- glory of God. And therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far ex- uh, more exceeding and the eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we know that this book would be a closed book to us apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And how many of us in this room can attest to that, endeavoring to pick up your Bible and understand it and independent of your spirit and not able to make any sense of it at all. And then, Lord, when you come and you make it clear to us, then something really happens there. It becomes a book like, unlike anything else in the world. And we pray that you would take this living book and that by your spirit you would take these verses and give them a living place in our walk with you and in our Christian life and in our influence in this world, Lord. And we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we come to another one of these great encouragement nuggets that really fill the book of Second Corinthians. And it would seem kind of odd that Second Corinthians would be a source of uh, so many of these nuggets of encouragement, given the fact that uh, Paul was in the middle of a very, very difficult circumstance at the time in which he uh, wrote this letter. But how often it is in our lives that it's in times of difficulty, times of su- suffering, that some of the most beautiful things that we learn about God, uh, uh, we learn and rise to the surface. And so it is with the Apostle Paul. He's, this encouragement is birthed out of very difficult circumstances he's facing there in the church at Corinth, and mistreatment that is, uh, I mean, just appalling mistreatment that's being directed toward him, even though he was the human instrument that God used to establish the church in Corinth, and even though he had spent 18 years of a very finite uh, ministry life in establishing the church. Uh, Only the church of Ephesus, of all of the churches that he planted, only Ephesus would have the Apostle Paul in their city and establishing the church for a longer time than he spent in Corinth in establishing that church. In Ephesus, it was a period of three uh, years. 
And, and while the overwhelming majority of those in the church at Corinth, they were grateful for Paul, they welcomed his pastoral authority, they welcomed his apostolic authority uh, within the church and influence within the church, but it does appear that there was a small group of men and kind of led by one man who was a particular thorn in the flesh to the Apostle Paul. But there were a group of men that had come in. They had elevated themselves into a position of leadership. And now somehow they recognized that Paul's authority within the church is an obstacle to them becoming uh, kind of the uh, uh, asserting their own leadership and authority over the church. And it appears that Paul constitutes the only obstacle uh, uh, to that. And they were accusing him, as we've already seen, uh, to the congregation of having a lack of integrity that his do no doesn't always mean no and his yes doesn't always mean yes. Uh, they also condemned him to the congregation for failing to show up with letters of recommendation uh, to the church of Corinth. And here, uh, <clears throat> viewing the perishing of the Apostle Paul, viewing the decline of the Apostle Paul's body physically, the suffering that was so much a part uh, of, of his life, though we respect it so much in his life, uh, they were contending that it was a sign of God's displeasure with the Apostle Paul, of God's disfavor concerning uh, the Apostle Paul. And so perhaps there was this kind of quiet uh, whispering campaign that might have been going on uh, in, in the church along the lines of uh, questioning Paul and his authority. Isn't it reasonable to think uh, that uh, if Paul really was an apostle, that God would take better care of him than God is apparently taking care of him. And that kind of an accusation against Paul would have gotten a lot of traction in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a part of the Roman Empire, but it was very much a Greek city, and a city that was dominated by Greek learning, dominated by uh, Greek philosophy. And Greek learning and Greek culture and philosophy tended to judge people almost exclusively on the basis of their uh, outward appearance, their ability, uh, their oratory ability, their ability to speak, their ability to present themselves, uh, their physical appearance. And, uh, and uh, some Greek philosophy uh, viewed a person that was uh, beautiful outwardly to also then as a result be beautifully, beautiful inwardly. And they really did uh, worship the beauty of, of the human body. And then conversely for a Greek or for those in Corinth uh, or, or, or Corinth in general, in, in Greek philosophy in general, that to possess a body that was physically perishing as Paul declared his body to be doing, that that would have been a sign of God's disfavor in their life and a cause for rejecting Paul and his authority. Now, additionally, not universally, but, but predominantly, uh, it, it was the idea that suffering among the Greeks was, it was an indication that a person was being punished by the gods which then when you look at the sheer amount of suffering that, and affliction that the Apostle Paul went through in his Christian life and in his Christian uh, ministry, uh, apparently uh, they took all of it, again, what we respect so much in him, and they viewed it as a mark of God's displeasure. And with them coming from pagan backgrounds as they uh, as they had uh, done uh, in bringing that into their Christian lives, they would have uh, viewed his immense suffering that marked his life not as a sign uh, of, of uh, a favor of the gods, but a sign of the disfavor of the gods, plural. But now being Christians, they carry that baggage over into their Christian lives and they viewed this kind of hardship and difficulty as a sign of this disfavor of God, singular, the disfavor of God, the God of the Bible. And so while Paul writes here, perhaps as a defense to this accusation that's being made against him there 
in, in the church and, uh, and the, this misunderstanding of Christianity, at the same time the Holy Spirit causes him to write down what he writes here for our understanding concerning the suffering that we face in life as Christians and how we are to view that affliction and how we're to view that kind of suffering. I do want to spend just another moment or two on this and uh, this question that was kind of being posed, how could a guy be spiritual, much less be an apostle, if he endures so much suffering in his life? Because not only is, that, uh, is it wrong to view suffering as a sign of God's displeasure in our lives, but because it's something that we can be very, very susceptible to, uh, even as Christians, to come to conclusions about people's life or their inner health or their inner spirituality based upon their circumstances or their outward uh, appearances. This was certainly the dominant view among the Jewish religious establishment at the time of Jesus. And, uh, and, the, and the disciples had been raised up all of their life under this influence. And so when they became followers of Jesus, Jesus ultimately corrected it in their lives. In John chapter 9, verse 1, I'll read it for you, is an example of this kind of thing. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It wasn't uh, whether that happened. It was a matter of who to put the blame on. Uh, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God could be revealed, should be revealed in him. And behind their question was the assumption that all blindness, as well as all other physical handicaps and, and imperfections, they had to be the result of sin in someone's life. Sin either in the life of uh, the child or the, the person or the baby even, and, and, uh, or uh, in, in the parents. There had to be wrongdoing somewhere. And so that's how they viewed all of these kind of handicaps. The Jews actually taught at that time that uh, if a child was born with some kind of a handicap at all, that it was the sin of either the child, uh, the child had sinned in the womb, I don't know what kind of trouble you can get into in the womb, but they, uh, they believed it, and, uh, or that the parents had been guilty of some terrible sin, and as a result, uh, this played out in the child's life. It, you could hardly be crueler to parents or to a child than uh, to come up with this kind of an understanding uh, of God or religious teaching. And the idea that every time something hard or bad happens in our lives has to be the result of some sin in my life or that somehow God is punishing me, that's a prevalent view even uh, today as opposed to just simply recognizing that we live in a very fallen world. All of creation is fallen, our bodies are fallen, head to toe, inside and out, and that there is suffering, affliction, difficulty, and trials in life simply because the world is fallen and we are fallen descendants of Adam and Eve. Now, that suffering only happens to secret sinners was, the, you might remember, the continual charge that Job's so-called comforters brought against him. I mean, if these are friends, who needs friends? So for 30-plus chapters there, uh, they're accusing him of being a secret sinner, that he had spent all of his life giving the outward appearance of being righteous and knowing God and serious about God. But no one could go through the difficulty that Job was going through except he had a secret, a secret sin. But the Bible rec records for us that he was absolutely righteous in the eyes of God. And, of course, we have the modern health and wealth doctrine today, and the, or the prosperity doctrine, and it's the teaching that if you have enough faith, you'll always be healthy, and uh, you'll always uh, be wealthy, that you can faith yourself into health, that you can faith yourself 
into wealth as a Christian, and all of that, of course, lands very, very close to this kind of, uh, of thinking. Because while it doesn't openly ascribe people's illnesses and material want uh, to sin, it does ascribe it to a lack of faith. It ascribes it to a lack of something, faith in the life uh, of a Christian. But all of that is to ignore the example of Job in the Old Testament, uh, those commended to us as being members of the real hall of faith in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, which reads in part of those saints, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then God's commentary concerning them was, it was too bad they didn't have enough faith. That's not how the writer goes on in in completing that passage. The uh, writer says, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of this kind of an idea uh, of this kind of doctrine uh, violates the example of the Apostle Paul in, in, in Scripture. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul said, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And what I learned in those extremes in life is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And all of it is testified to here as we uh, read about the sufferings here in part that the Apostle Paul uh, uh, endured in his life. And to believe this uh, kind of thing, that suffering is an indication of God's displeasure with us, is not only, uh, it not only presents the danger that I will misjudge other people, badly misjudge them as a result of it, but I can then come to misjudge myself and my standing with God. And worse yet, to misjudge God and His esteem of me, and to certainly minimize His grace, that somehow this is how uh, He uh, works in, uh, in our lives, and that He somehow punishes us in, in this way, and that every trial, every suffering, every affliction is a sign of His, his, uh, his displeasure. And if you're under the weight of that, because of the weight of the difficulty you find yourself in in life right now, certainly the Apostle Paul, God wants you to jettison that thought that it must be something wrong between you and God uh, necessarily as the source of it, that somehow you're displeasing Him. And then Paul does something very valuable and instructive for us here. He anticipates two questions, I think. And the questions that might arise from what he's declaring here is, yes, Paul, uh, uh, we understand all of these things. We understand, all right, that suffering and affliction and uh, perishing and what goes on in our lives, that it isn't a sign of God's displeasure. But how in the world do we navigate the suffering and the fallenness of life that occurs in our lives between this moment right now and one day entering into the glory of heaven. And then to ask Paul, how in the world did you do it? In the light of the greatness of your suffering, how did you manage to maintain a proper perspective concerning others and yourself and God in the midst of it? And verses 16 through 18 are his answer to those questions. He begins verse 16 with the word, therefore. He writes, therefore, we do not lose heart. And of course, losing heart is one of the great tendencies in our life in a time of real affliction and in a time of great suffering within our life. It's a great 
uh, threat and a danger. Losing heart, the words that Paul uses here, it literally means lose heart, become discouraged, and even more, uh, to give up. And, and here we have the reminder of that very old but very valuable uh, saying about the Bible, and that is when you see the word therefore in the Scriptures, to always uh, 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 ask yourself, what is it there for? Because it's, it, therefore means whoever is writing is concluding an argument that they've already begun. They're coming to a conclusion. So you want to know what have they said here to come to that, uh, this particular uh, conclusion. And so that's why Paul uses the word therefore uh, in and uh, tying it to what he has said immediately before. And I think the Apostle Paul has already begun to answer this question uh, in, uh, uh, in, uh, concerning how we're to navigate the suffering we face in life as Christians between now and heaven in verses uh, 8 through 15, where Paul communicated that while his Christian life and his calling were definitely not easy, they did involve suffering, but there were limitations that God placed upon that suffering. If his antagonists in the church at Corinth uh, had cared to take notice of them, you notice in verses uh, 8 and 9, he said, We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, Perple uh, uh, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In other words, he said, yes, I have, uh, live a life that is filled with suffering and filled with, uh, with affliction. Uh, nobody could doubt that. Nobody could deny that. But he was saying there, is, there was evidence of God's grace, evidence of God's favor everywhere in his life. Not in being exempted from suffering, and from uh, difficulty, but by being kept by God in the midst of it. As God kept those things within a productive measure within, within the Apostle Paul's life. And then in verses 13 and 14, uh, Paul spoke of his absolute confidence in the fact that all of this suffering that he experienced in life, that it would come to a glorious end upon the day that he one day would enter into uh, heaven. And with that then, Paul continued to give his reasons for not losing heart in the midst of suffering in verses 16 uh, through uh, uh, 18. In verse 16, he tells us that it's important to realize that while our outward man is perishing, that our inward man is being renewed day by day. So Paul gives us the bad news first, and that is this life, uh, our physical bodies that we have in this life, that we have from Adam and Eve, that they're always in the process of perishing. It's a good spot for an amen. I, I'm, I just <laughs> say it in your heart. The word perishing, as Paul uses it here, uh, is in the present tense. In other words, it is always going on and it is progressively going on in all of our lives. And who in the world can deny that our bodies and, uh, are perishing uh, above uh, the age of 25? You may not be aware of the fact that there are people that study all of these kind of things and some of them uh, estimate that it is at age 25 for the average human being that our body now, uh, more cells die in our body than are produced by our body, and so the aging process begins at 25. So if you just had your 26th birthday, uh, sorry about that. Um, it gets worse, just so you know. It gets much, much, uh, much worse. I. I uh, uh, one of my, you know, they have all this scientific data and all of this uh, kind of thing, 
And uh, there's a less scientific measure for all of this. I think it's just as an effective means of, of knowing that you're getting older. And it's one of my favorite jokes about getting older. And it goes like this. You know you're getting older if you bend over to pick something up off the floor and you ask yourself, is there anything else I can do while I'm down here? That's a dead giveaway of, of massive progression uh, related to that. And it all speaks to the fact you have to keep a sense of humor. Uh, in, in, in all of this well. I, I remember being a very, very new Christian. I mean, brand new, born again. And I, I got this Christian magazine at the church I was attending somehow, and, and it had an ad in the back that promised something that w made me curious. And so I was living in Napa at the time, and the phone number was Fairfield, and so I called it. And as, as I began to discuss this something with this a person that answered on the other end of the line. It was my first exposure with the health and wealth doctrine or the prosperity uh, doctrine, which is what she uh, held to. And, uh, and so she uh, went on and on about if you, did, if you had enough faith, you would never get sick or you would always have lots of money and this uh, kind of thing. And I listened to her lay out the spiel and and uh, uh, concerning all of it. And then I posed to her the single great question that entered into my mind at the time, and that was, uh, well, how then do you people die? <laughs> and uh, and she, said, she said to me, uh, she said, well, when the time comes, we simply give up our spirit just the way that Jesus did on the cross. Now, I, I, I've been a pastor a long time, and, uh, um, and, and I have found that uh, what is true of both Christians and non-Christians is that we tend to die of the last thing we get ill with. Uh, I've, yet, I've yet to go into a hospital room and have somebody say, wait a second, Pastor, I've got this all under control. I'm going to give up my spirit right now. No, the Lord numbers our days. He numbers our days. We don't number our days. Uh, in, in, in this way. Well, all of this, Paul knew nothing of this, this kind of thing. He noticed the decay of his own body. Any self-aware, awake person is going to recognize the deterioration uh, of, uh, of the, the, the body. I am in the process of perishing, whether it's by age or by injury or by persecution. And the perishing is not merely in the realm of the physical in terms of our strength, but our margins, even at best, our mental margins, our emotional margins, uh, compress over the course uh, of our uh, lives as well. And it's inevitable, and it is this part of this perishing of the outward man. Now, before any of us heads, it slips into a depression here or does any harm to ourselves here as we're here this morning, Paul does give us the good news. And the good news is just as surely as our bodies are perishing. And how sure is that? Very sure. Very progressive and in a greater measure. Just as sure as our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And, and in this, he turns to this very uh, powerful mechanism that he uses in these three verses where he uses contrast. The outer man, the inward man, perishing, being renewed day by day. And he lays these contrasts out all the way through the three verses. The inward man speaks of our soul. It speaks of our heart, our mind, our spirit as they are uh, submitted to God, as, they holy con uh, as they're controlled by the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. And that work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives to make us progressively more like Jesus in our believing, in our doing, in our thinking, in our saying, in our attitudes, in our perspectives in life. This is the, re the renewing work that the Holy Spirit uh, does within our lives. And just as our outward man is progressively perishing, our inward man is being renewed by the Holy Spirit day by day. It becomes progressively the inward man 
progressively stronger, progressively the dominant influence with, uh, within uh, our lives, more powerful in our lives. And you think about how wonderful uh, that is. And we know it to be true as Christians. We've all experienced the outward man is perishing, but what is happening between God and us in the midst of this perishing, on the inside, what we're learning, what we're seeing, and what is happening, what He's bringing to us inside. The, uh, and this inner person is, uh, is, is so strong, and, and, and this man is being strengthened inside in an even greater measure than the perishing of the outward man. And, and, uh, and ultimately, the inner man be, it comes to uh, dominate in terms of uh, weightiness, the, the perishing of the outward man. And we come as time goes on, the perishing of the outward man, the renewing of the inner man, where we start to see the world more clearly than we've ever seen it before. It certainly prepares our hearts for um, a, a longing for heaven. Uh, it certainly helps us to understand how to process life and how to see life and draws us closer and closer to God uh, as a result. And what Paul did, and he encourages us to do, is this. Yes, we're absolutely free to notice the perishing of the outer man, but we must never notice that alone but to then notice that at the same time where it appears that God is doing nothing for me physically, that at the same, that same time that ravages the body is also the time that the Holy Spirit is using wonderfully to make us more like Jesus uh, him, Himself. To notice the perishing, yes, but then to immediately notice this dynamic of the Holy Spirit that is happening within our lives as well. And the world around us knows nothing about it, and it can't know anything about it. They cannot view their perishing in that way. But Christians can, and Christians uh, should. In this inward renewal, it is this that makes the perishing life outwardly worth it. But we must keep our focus upon it. And Paul, his adversaries in Corinth, uh, all they looked at was the perishing of his outer body. And they failed to recognize this dynamic of God in terms of his character, in terms of his relationship with God being conformed into the image of Christ. And thus, they couldn't even begin to understand uh, Paul. Just as no unsaved person can look at a Christian and, and watch that them as their physical body perishes and understand the inward dynamic that's happening in the midst of that because that dynamic is not happening in them. You ever ask yourself, I ask myself this all the time, and um, as you see the trials and difficulties of life and how many people are dealing with illnesses and all these kind of things, the, the outward man perishing. And, and you ask yourself, I don't know how the world processes this. I don't know how they deal with this grief. I don't know how they deal with this tragedy. I don't know how they do it without an inner man that is being renewed at the same time concerning their own life and the life of uh, loved ones. Candidly, all of this, none of life would make any sense to me apart from Christianity, apart from the Bible, how we got here, why we are the way that we are, why we are sinners, why things deteriorate uh, everywhere in creation and in the human body. Why are we sinners? Why do we need a Savior? And, and having a confidence and a hope of heaven founded upon Jesus. If, I did, if there was not a Bible in human history, I speak for myself, you may look at life entirely differently. I hope you do. But I would look at life and I would say, 
if this is all there is, is being born into the world, hitting age 25, and then to begin to perish, and, and then no hope on the other side of the grave, this is the cruelest joke that anyone could have come up to uh, come up with and put human beings through to go through the sheer amount of suffering and fallenness and victimization in life with these periodic little uh, recesses of fun and happiness and then ultimately you decay and you die I, uh, that it would be a joke to me and Paul comes in and says, related to the Christian, what keeps life from becoming that kind of a joke is that he couples always the perishing of the outer man with this glorious work of the inner man. You notice next that Paul uh, uh, encourages us concerning how to view our affliction in life in verse 17. We've been so long separated from it, allow me to read it again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And here Paul describes the afflictions of life, even the afflictions in his life, as being light. And when he calls them light, he is not saying that they are not that they are insignificant. He is saying that they are light in contrast to something else. And what they are light in contrast to is the more exceeding and eternal weight of glory in us. And who in the world, who in in the history of the church uh, has known more about suffering uh, next to Jesus himself than the Apostle uh, Paul. We've already seen earlier in this chapter, he talked about being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Earlier in the letter in chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Later in chapter 11, in this uh, very uh, book, famously, uh, Paul uh, uh, writes there, he said, are they ministers of Christ? Now as he begins to address these men that were attacking him in the church at Corinth, he said, I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've been in the deep. And on and on and on he goes with that uh, descri uh, description. And as we read it, we ask ourselves, all of that is light compared to what? He says, compared to the eternal glory that is in the future of every Christian. And it's the same thing that he wrote when he wrote the uh, letter to the church at Rome. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not to, worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Speaking of heaven. Not merely the glory that will be revealed to us, but the glory that will be revealed in us at that time. And so someone might raise the question, well, who made the Apostle Paul the big expert on heaven? And the simple answer is, God did. And Paul writes of that later in, in this same book in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul wrote, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He said, I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And such a one was caught up into the third heaven, into the glory of heaven itself. 
He said, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not, uh, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. He kept this experience between him and God to himself for 14 years. If I had been physically taken into the glory of heaven or shown it by way of vision, Paul didn't know which it was that was, was there. If that happened to me, you'd hear about it before the day was over. But here Paul holds it in his hip pocket for 14 years, only brings it out because of the attack that's being brought against him by these men, and only then to protect the innocent Christians that are within the church at, 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 uh, at Corinth. And so uh, Paul looks and he says, I've seen, I've seen it. God has given me a revelation of it. And he said, it would be a dishonor to heaven in what it is that I saw. If any, me or any man attempted to describe, uh, not only describe what I saw in, in, in a human language, but even to describe what it is that I heard in, in that glory. Well, someone might wonder, well, that's great for the Apostle Paul. I'm glad he had the vision or he uh, had that revelation from God, whatever the means was. But where do we get the same uh, assurance in our own lives about our own future uh, in, in the presence of, uh, of the glory uh, of heaven. And we get it from the greatest authority of all, and that's Jesus himself. In John chapter 14, he said to each of us as Christians, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Paul considered all the affliction he experienced as the lightest conceivable thing compared to the glory that he knew not only awaited him, but every single uh, Christian in this uh, world. And it is important in our lives as Christians to uh, occasionally, if not regularly, to take some time to spend thinking about heaven. And not as some kind of obscure theological thing, but the fact that one day we're going to be there. And that God assures us of that fact, that, that the one who assures us of that is none other than Jesus himself. That we will stand on that glassy sea, that we will cast our crowns before the Lord, we will see all of the glory of it, we will engage in the worship and the praise that, that fills it, that all of that is, is in our uh, future and that we're headed there and it's not going to be for a hundred years or a thousand years or for ten thousand years or a million years but it's going to be forever and ever time without end and so often it is our afflictions that produce this longing for heaven that we would never otherwise have Paul says it works in us, and one of the things that works in us is that longing for heaven and the continued preparation for it in our lives by the Holy Spirit. And then finally and very briefly in verse 18, Paul encourages us as to where we are to fix our gaze in this pilgrimage that we're in. Uh, that can involve so much affliction. He tells us that while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And that word look at, it means to fix our attention upon. It means to fill our thoughts uh, with. And so what we are not to make the focus uh, of, uh, uh, of our lives is the things that are seen. And namely, as he speaks of them here, of our persecutions, of our afflictions, of our suffering. 
If that is our, the, uh, the sole place that we place our gaze in this life, it'll sink anyone. Even the eternal optimist will be sunk uh, by that. Of course, it doesn't mean that we won't notice our afflictions, that we won't notice our sufferings, the perishing of the outer, outward man. We will notice all of them. We will deal with those things, but we're not to make them the supreme focus of our, uh, in our life. And then he tells us what we are to make the focus of our lives, the things which are not seen. And this speaks of God's work of renewal in our life right now. It speaks of our hope and our confidence related to the eternal weight of glory that uh, awaits us. And I know that you're like me when you look at things and you say, I love the person that God is making me into and probably could only make me into through affliction, through suffering, through the perishing uh, of the outer, outer man. And so he works in each of our lives. Well, the great question here before we close on this is exactly how does that happen? How in the world do we look at the things that are not seen? What's he talking about there on a practical level? As we head to our cars, where do we set our gaze? <laughs> what do I do here? I need a little help to, uh, to, to bridge that gap. And it happens in our lives exactly the same way. This... Uh, looking at the things which are not seen in the same way that it happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. It happens as we pray. It happens as we read our Bible. These things that we grow so accustomed to in our lives, but they are the means by which these things are kept at the forefront of our mind and our thinking and attention in the midst of suffering and in the midst of this pilgrimage. The reading of our, our Bible daily, the study of uh, our study of the Bible through the worship of God as we did in song uh, immediately before uh, Pastor Mark came out, through our church attendance, fellowship with the kingdom of God, other Christians, and then through faithfulness to our Christian service. It's very, very practical. All of these things accomplish so many things in our life at once, but what they do is they take our minds off of, our focus off of, the things that are perishing and putting them on the things that uh, do not perish. And so, yes, for us as Christians, the outward man is perishing, and it can be a very real cause to lose heart. And Paul reminds us that there's another way to look at all of this. That's an incomplete look at life. But the alternate way of looking at things is to put my eyes on and realize that the inward man is being renewed day by day. And as surely as our bodies are perishing, as surely as those adversaries of Paul in the church of Corinth looked at him outwardly and physically came to conclusions about him and about his relationship with God and the disfavor of God in his life based upon uh, the outward. As surely as that outward was, uh, was perishing, the inward man is being renewed uh, day by day as well. And if nobody else sees it, it's important that we see it in our own lives and recognize it. That no, God hasn't abandoned me when I'm in the midst of suffering and my body is perishing because I recognize the even greater work that He is doing in my life of renewing my inner man and preparing me for the glory of heaven. He leaves His fingerprints everywhere. And hallelujah for this truth. Not just a verse in the Bible. It's a truth about each of our lives. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, what's uh, the alternative to what Jesus and Christianity offers? What's the alternative? The alternative is to perish. It is to physically perish 
day by day, week by week, month by month, until one day the perishing is over. And, and, and what a dismal, hopeless, purposeless life that is. What a cruel life it would be if indeed that was all that life was. And, and in, this, in this decline of the body, to go through all of it without having the Holy Spirit inside of me doing this greater work. And so you face the perishing. There's no getting around the perishing. Nobody escapes the perishing. The only question is, will I allow God to do this inner work, this greater work in me in the face of that perishing? And only the Holy Spirit can do that as we would commit our life to Jesus Christ, putting our faith in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you have never done that, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to pray with you and for you to begin the relationship with God that you have been created for and without which nothing in life will make sense. And if you need prayer for anything in your life, all of us here this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we see it. I think we, we think we see it. You don't give us a guarantee that we're going to be freed from the perishing of the out, outer man. There's going to be trials, going to be difficulties. There's going to be affliction. And yet, Lord, to not judge you and to view you, to view all of those things in our lives as a neglect on your part or your disfavor in our life or your disappointment in us but to recognize that's a part of this life and then to fix our gaze upon this glorious thing you're doing inside of our lives and then the glorious hope that you have put before us. And Lord, we thank you that these aren't merely verses on a page, but something that you have produced by your Holy Spirit within our lives, giving us a hope and a perspective and a richness that we would never otherwise know. Thank you for your fingerprints that you leave upon our lives, both inwardly and outwardly, through all of it. Praise you, Lord. We praise you for this glorious work of your Holy Spirit, for your grace, for your love, for your commitment to us. And we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.